This week I've been thinking about a phrase. The phrase is painful grace. Say, why you been thinking about that phrase? Well, I've been thinking about the way God often works a sermon in a preacher's life before he ever shares it. Why did I say painful grace? Because sometimes that involves him allowing a trial in the preacher's life. It's painful. Maybe you know that in your own scripture reading. Sometimes you read something and then you walk through something sometimes painful in your life where you see it played out and you're like, oh, I see how that works. Why do I say it's painful grace? Because God walks with us through those trials. He gives us all the strength we need in the risen Lord within by the Holy Spirit and through His Word, painful grace. Why do I share that? I share that because of the week that our family has had. I want to show you a picture of some people. That's Jean and Catherine Lockhart. I know them as Mama and Papa. That's my mom's parents, my grandma and grandpa. She's 90, he's 97. They got married in 1947. And the picture on the right is a picture my sister in Ohio took this week of him holding her hand in the ICU. After we left you last Sunday, we got a call that she had fallen in her apartment and was found unresponsive. They weren't sure how long she had been down, but they, they rushed her to the hospital by ambulance. And that evening, our family of five circled up and said, Lord, we know Mama knows you. And they were saying, it's not looking good. So, Lord, we trust you. If you want to take her home to be with Jesus, we know that's what she has coming. But if you choose to heal her and, and restore her and bring glory to your name by working that way, we know you can do that too, Lord. We prayed that. Later in the week, we, we got more news that she was put on life support in the hospital. And they were going to try to take her off of the life support and see if she could make it on her own. The first time they tried that, she had a physical fight against the, the transition, so they said, we're going to wait and try it again Thursday morning. Thursday morning, I was in the Walmart parking lot when my mom reached out uh, and just said she's with Jesus. Mama is with Jesus. So today, my brother and I are going to rush down to Phoenix and, and fly back to Ohio for her celebration of life service at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Say, what does that have to do with, with your sermon and that painful grace of God, God preparing you? Well, before we even knew about the life support and how bad things were looking, at least in earthly terms, Tuesday morning I, I took this week's passage, as I often do long before you pull out any commentaries or any other resources, just, just me and the Bible and God, and, and I would write out the passage time and time and time again in a notebook because it forces me to, to look at every word. What are you saying, God? What, what is it you want me to learn? What is it you want me to share on Sunday? And as I did that on Tuesday, I came to the three-point outline I'm going to share with you today. And now looking back at the events of this week, I can see how timely it was in, in my own life. It was painful grace. So I invite you to go along with me. Last week, you'll remember that we said Paul was a man obsessed with Christ. 
He was obsessed with the church of Christ. He's obsessed with the gospel for the lost. And he's obsessed with the glory of God. But some might say, okay, that's great. But how does that play out when, when things hit the fan in Paul's life? Does he remain that way? Most of you know he was writing this letter from imprisonment, I believe house arrest in Rome. But today we're going to learn more that, yes, he holds on to that obsession even in the middle of the darkest moments of his life. And I want you to walk with me as we go through these three ideas. The first one is, our difficult and unforeseen circumstances can be used by God to advance the gospel. What difficulty or trial are you facing right now? I want you to hear that phrase again. Our difficulties and unforeseen circumstances can be used to advance the gospel of God. I say that because of what he writes to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He said all of this has really served to advance the gospel. That word really could also be translated rather. What's going on here is they likely sent a letter to Paul with Epaphroditus along with the gift we talked about to say, hey, Paul, how are you doing? And they likely expected negative news. He's in prison. And if you look at what led up to this, you can understand why they think that way even more. Read Acts 21 to 28. He was falsely accused in Jerusalem. And then from there, he was sent to Caesarea where he languished for two years. Then he finally got to Rome after a shipwreck. And many believe this is near the end of two years under house arrest in Rome. So they're probably, humanly speaking, expecting some, some bad news. But Paul says... Really, rather, this has served to advance the gospel. That word advance is interesting. It's a military term. When the, the Roman army would go out, they'd have engineers at the front of their army. And those engineers would go out and clear obstacles out of the way so the army could take new ground, so they could advance. Paul's saying, actually, guys, what's happening here is God is clearing out obstacles to help the gospel of Jesus Christ advance. You say, how is he doing that? Well, verse 13, he says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, we know when Paul was under house arrest in Rome that there was a soldier with him to guard him. You can look at Acts 28, 16. It says, when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And while it's difficult to be 100%, many historians believe that this was part of Caesar's imperial guard. There were nine to 10,000 of these guys. These were his best troops. And they believe that Paul was chained to one of these guys at all times. And these guards would rotate every, some say every four hours, some say every six hours. I like what one author said here. Can you imagine what you would see in here if you were chained to the Apostle Paul? 
This is the guy, right, who already in Philippians, we saw him and his buddy Silas singing in prison. Maybe they heard some of that. Maybe they heard him praying to the Lord he loves. Surely they heard him talking to the visitors who came to hear about this gospel, right? We know he wrote four letters from imprisonment. Sometimes he dictated those. Did, did they hear him dictating Ephesians, Colossians, or any of the other letters he sent from prison? Or as he was writing, did they ever ask him, what are you writing about? And Paul would say, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Chained to the apostle Paul, the imperial guard, all that they heard. Wow. Now what's it say? It says, through all that, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, the rest that came to visit, that my imprisonment is for Christ. What's that mean? They learned this, this guy's not like most of the criminals we deal with. He's not in here for some heinous crime. He loves this guy named Jesus Christ. This guy's different. But it gets even better. We know from later in this letter that through all this, some in Caesar's household even came to know the Lord as their Savior. How do we know that? Look at chapter 4, verse 21. At the end of this letter, he says to the Philippians, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. <laughs> How creative of God, right? How unexpected. How, how sovereign that he would use Paul's imprisonment to advance the gospel among these ranks. Does that not give us hope that in our own trials God can advance the gospel? I mean, Paul is literally on lockdown, so you could run the gamut from whether you're on lockdown for 14 days for COVID, as many of us have been at some point, all the way to the worst trials we face in this life, Lo losing a loved one, facing a, a horrible disease. God can use our difficulties to advance the gospel. It was also advancing another way, and this leads to my second point. Our faithfulness in hard circumstances can inspire faithfulness in other believers. Likewise, our unfaithfulness or fear in difficult circumstances can discourage other believers. Why do I say this? Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Listen, how many of you know when trials hit us, people watch? They watch to see how we react in the middle of those trials. He's in Rome, as I believe here. He had already sent a letter to Rome. There was, there was a church in Rome. And as these Roman Christians, what I believe is going on here, they're, they're watching and hearing about Paul in prison. And they're saying, whoa, if, if Paul can remain faithful under house arrest, then I can be faithful where I'm at. And I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to stand with my brother. One author I read, I read also proposed that maybe they started wrestling with a question that sometimes is scary, but I think we all need to wrestle with to get to freedom. That question is, what's the worst that can happen if I'm faithful 
to Jesus. Right? What's the worst that can happen? They're looking at Paul saying, he's in prison and he's still got the joy and strength of the Lord and God is still using him. What's the worst that can happen? Let's go through, through a few of them. I might get mocked and my reputation might come under assault. Guess what Jesus said in Luke 6, 22? He said, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. So if I'm mocked and reviled for Jesus, I got reward coming. What if we go worse to imprisonment or torture? Guess what? There's glory coming. There's glory coming. Romans 8.18. He had written the Roman church. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be, to be revealed to us. That glory is going to be so awesome. Whatever trials we go through on this side are going to pale in comparison. What about death? I'm going to be with Christ. I am going to be with Christ. In fact, we're going to look at the verse next week when he talks about wrestling with not knowing is he going to get out alive or is he going to go to be with the Lord. One thing he said in Philippians 1.23 he said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So what's, what's the worst that can happen? Listen, we have an enemy of our souls, Satan, who wants believers paralyzed by fear. It's one of his biggest weapons to control us and limit our effectiveness for Christ. I was listening to a song this week by a band called The Letter Black. The song was called Fear. And at the beginning of it, they had uh, part of a movie in the background. I don't know what movie it was, but there's two people talking. Somebody says, do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? The answer, it's fear. And then this Christian band, The Letter Black, in the chorus of that song, and I don't know for sure, but it sounds to me like they're talking to Satan in Christ, Listen to what they say in the chorus. You want it. You need it. My fear. You won't get it anymore. I think in Christ there are some of us that need to make that stand when the enemy comes. To paralyze us with fear. You want it. He, he does need it. Because without it, he cannot control you. Why do you think so many times in the Bible God tells us to not fear? I've never counted them. I know there are some who say there are 365, one for every day. I've never counted them. I just know there's a lot. Okay, and I'm going to hit you with a few. If you're battling with being paralyzed by fear in this world, you may want to write these down, or you may just want to close your eyes and let the truth of these wash over your soul. Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Psalm 27.3, Though an army encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Isaiah 41.10, 
this people Israel, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What about Luke 12, 32, New Testament? Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 2 Timothy 1, 7, two more. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love, and of a sound mind. In Hebrews 13, 6, we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's remember that as we walk through our trials. Our, our faithfulness and courage to the Lord can inspire other believers to faithfulness and courage. Our unfaithfulness and being paralyzed by fear can discourage other believers. It's contagious. Finally, true joy, true joy is not found in earthly comfort and what other men think about us. True joy is found in God's glory and the spread of the gospel. I get this from verse 15. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So in other words, in Rome... There are two groups of people. They're all preaching the true gospel of Christ, but some of them got really wicked motives as they preach it. Some do it out of goodwill. We'll, we'll talk about those wicked motives more in a moment. The latter group, those who do it out of goodwill, they do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? What, what, how's Paul going to react? Especially this negative group out here. He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, I want to talk about this first group, the ones with wicked motives. It says they do it out of envy. Evidently, some of them were jealous of the Apostle Paul. He had developed quite a following. Maybe they look and say, now he's locked up. Now's my chance. I'm going to go out there and preach Christ, but not so much because I care about Christ or people getting saved, but because I want people to follow me more than they follow Paul. Some of them preached it out of envy. Some of them preached it out of rivalry or strife, which is a desire to stir things up. Now Paul's locked up. This is my chance to mess some stuff up. Selfish ambition, contention. You know what that is? That's a party spirit. It's canvassing people to your side. It's playing politics in the church. I, I want to get you on my side against that side. Some of them were doing it for that reason. And he uses the word, he says, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment in verse 17. They want to afflict him. That word is very picturesque in the Greek. It really means friction. And it's kind of a word picture. You, you can think of the chains on a prisoner's arms or legs and the, the friction, the, the pain that would bring over days and, and weeks and months and years. He's saying these people are looking to bring emotional affliction on me in addition to what I'm going through in my imprisonment already. To sum it up, what? These people are looking to climb a ladder and step on Paul's head while he's down. That, that, that's why they're preaching 
Christ. And I, I summed it up this way. The true gospel of Christ was on their lips, but in their hearts, they had selfish promotion and division driving them. Okay? John Wesley urged his preachers and his movement against this. He urged them, quote, by prayer, by exhortation, and by every possible means to oppose a party spirit. Oppose a party spirit in, in the church. Adding, quote, this is always, so far as it has prevailed, the bane of our true religion. Okay? Thankfully, there was another group. This other group, Paul says, did it out of love. Knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That word put is interesting. Some translations say set here. It's a, it's a military term for an assignment. This was his assignment from the Lord to be there in defense of the gospel. That word defense in the Greek is apologia, where we get the word what? Apologetics. The, the defense of the faith. God had put him there. And I like the way author Ralph Martin put it. Just as much as that guard of Rome was assigned by his leaders to be there, Paul was on assignment as a good soldier of Jesus Christ as he sat in that prison. And there's a group of people in Rome that knew that. And they said, I'm going to stand with him in the defense of the gospel and preach the gospel. I want to read a couple of verses that point to Paul's appointment there way back at the beginning when he was called on the Damascus Road. Acts 9.15, God had told him that he was going to carry his name before kings. Now, I'm not sure Paul knew at that point it was going to look the way it played out, but this was part of how that came about. Also, Acts 23.11, during one of his prior imprisonments, says, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. The people who loved him knew that, and they said, I'm going to stand with that guy because this is he's doing God's will. He's right where God wants him. How thankful he would be for them. But what about the other group? Let me ask you a question. Did Paul let bitterness overcome his heart towards that group that was preaching out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition? Did he? No. His response, verse 18, says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The fact that Christ was being proclaimed was more important to him than how these people were treating him. Paul knew life was bigger than him. You know who that reminds me of in the Old Testament? Joseph. After everything his brothers had done to him, sold him into slavery. And at the end, after Joseph's raised up second in command in Egypt, they're afraid because of all they did to him. What's he going to do? You remember what Joseph said? Genesis 50, 19. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph was another one who knew that life was bigger than him. I think about Jesus. 
Life is not bigger than him. He is life. But even Jesus on the cross endured the cross for the joy set before him that he might provide a ransom for your sins and mine. Paul knew that life was, was bigger than him. And his joy was in Christ and the gospel being proclaimed. I want you to listen to something author Frank Thielman wrote. It's penetrating. He says, joy is not the self-satisfied delight that everything is going our way, but the settled peace that arises from making the gospel the focus of life and from understanding that God is able to advance the gospel under the most difficult circumstances. If in our own circumstances we lack this kind of joy, then perhaps we should search our souls to be sure that our happiness is not more firmly connected to our physical and emotional comfort than to the goals of the gospel. Wow. Wow. So you say, hold on, does, does God not care about our comfort as his children? Yes, he cares. Just don't look for it in fleeting earthly comfort. Find comfort in Him. That's what Paul did. You look at 2 Corinthians 1.3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Yes, He cares about your comfort, but look for it in Him. Not in your circumstances. What about when our reputations are wrongly under assault? Like these people were wrongly assaulting Paul with their motives, right? Rest in who God says you are. And let that be enough. As he had written the Roman Christians, Romans 8.15, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I believe for Paul that was enough. My father has adopted me and called me son. That's good enough for me. When others wrongly assault your reputation, rest in who God says you are. Next, I just want to say this. There are some people in this world you will never please. Come to terms with that. Come to terms with that. Please God. Please God and do what he has called you to do. Paul settled this in his ministry. Galatians 1.10 Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know, I can think of one other reason Paul found more joy in the gospel of Jesus spreading than in his personal comfort. He knew that the gospel of Jesus brought the only lasting solution. Everything else is sinking sand, as the, the song says. That makes me think about our opportunity in Ohio tomorrow morning. Several years ago, my mama asked me to, to lead that service when it was her time, and my brother to lead the musical worship at that service. We have a number of family and friends coming, some of whom know the Lord, and we want to encourage them with the truth. Mama's with Jesus. 
To live is Christ, to die is gain. Right? And encourage them. We want the lost to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus. That's our opportunity. And I believe we're going to have a receptive audience because it's in moments of pain that people start to think about what really matters in life. It's like Solomon said in, in Ecclesiastes 7.2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. You say, what are you talking about, Solomon? Are you some kind of sadist? No, why, why is it better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting? For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Because when someone we know passes into eternity, we start to think about our own eternity and the things that really matter. That's our opportunity. But what about you? What about you? What's your opportunity? See, if we believe in a sovereign God, there are no accidents when we come to the trials in our lives. Think of what Job said in the middle of all that he went through. Job 1.21. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I like the way Stuart Briscoe put it. When we come to trials, remember three words. To, in, through. Believer, when God allows something to happen to you, he wants to work in you so that he can work through you. Let me ask you three questions as we close. What trial are you facing right now? I know they come in all shapes and sizes. Take it before the Lord this week and say, Lord, how would you like to use this trial to advance the gospel? Who's watching me that doesn't know you? that needs to see you in my response to this, that needs to hear of you and my hope in you, even in the middle of this valley. Just say, I'm not a preacher. I'm not going to be preaching at some funeral, Scott. That's okay. In verse 14, when he says those people in Rome became confident in the Lord and became much more bold to speak the word without fear, it says speak the word without fear. That doesn't mean preaching. The Greek word there refers more to everyday conversation. It's not all done through preaching at a pulpit. A lot of it's done at work and in your neighborhood and among your friends and at the restaurant and among the people you know. What trial are you facing right now? Second question. What believers are watching you as you face this trial? Parents, maybe your kids are watching. Okay, are they seeing faith in Christ and obedience to Him? Or are they seeing paralyzing fear and unfaithfulness in the middle of the trial? Who's watching you? Because your response can be contagious one way or the other. Let's, let's be people who, by the power of the risen Lord and the Holy Spirit, inspire faithfulness and courage in the lives of our brothers and sisters by our own response when we go through trials. And finally, may I ask that question, where are you looking for joy? Where are you looking for joy? Ask God to help us find joy in the spread of the gospel and his glory. If you need comfort, go to God. Ask him to give you the comfort only he can.
when you find yourself under wrongful assault and your reputation, rest in who he says you are. Maybe read Ephesians 1 again or Romans 8 and say, Lord, that's enough. When you find there are people in your life that you just can't please no matter what in the world you do, just rest in pleasing God and let that be enough. Lord, thank you for Paul. Man, just the fact that this letter's written from where it's written takes away any notion that this is some pie-in-the-sky philosophy that only works when we're healthy, wealthy, and, and the rest. This is real, this hope we find in Christ. And I pray for those in this room. I don't know what all their trials are, but I pray that you would use each of our trials to advance your gospel. Uh, Lord, I pray that we'd encourage each other, that we walk by faith and not by fear in this world together. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to stop looking for joy in temporary fleeting things that always let us down and to just wake up and finally admit, Jesus, you're the only thing that never lets us down, the only one, God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You're the only firm foundation, that solid rock. Help us to find our joy in your glory and the spread of your gospel. Lord, any in need of comfort today, may you pour that comfort upon them. You are the God of all comfort, real comfort, true comfort. Pour it on, Lord. You love these people, even in the midst of their trials. Pour on your comfort. And help us to rest in who we are in you. Lord, not wrapped up in what this person thinks or that person thinks. Unless, of course, they're bringing biblical counsel. Sometimes they are. But when they're not, help us to go with you. Let that be enough. In Jesus' name. In the